The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. This is a very special Pod Save the World episode for me because the echo chamber has officially moved west. Ben Rhodes, now a Los Angeles resident, is sitting in studio at Crooked Media Global HQ. Ben, yes, it's so great to actually see your face when we're talking. Yeah, the entire infrastructure of the echo chamber is now here <laughs> the entire... in my iPhone. Now, let's explain to people for one second what the hell I'm talking about. There was a, a New Yorker story, which we briefly mentioned on Pod Save America, that talked about how Trump's national security staff actually circulated a memo that was written like an assessment of a yes. foreign insurgent network, but it was about, <laughs> yeah, us. about us. You yeah. are running yeah. the echo chamber along with Colin Call, who is Biden's national security advisor. But the broader network included yeah. me, Pfeiffer, Favreau, some others. Lovett was a little upset he was left out. We yeah. won't get into that. What did you make of this stupid memo? Well, you know, there were a couple of strange things about it. Yeah, it described uh, Colin as the operations chief, uh, like kind of like Al-Qaeda's number three, like yeah. the guy who keeps getting whacked. I think what was weird about it is, first, they really did write about us as if we were Al-Qaeda. And so people who should be spending their time at work, like thinking about, like writing about Al-Qaeda, how, yeah, writing about Al-Qaeda are going and thinking about us. And the mindset is that we really are an enemy of yeah. the state, just like the media is yeah. uh, to Trump. I should note, yeah, we're, we're recording this on 9-11. Like, they really should be thinking they and should writing be thinking about, about Al-Qaeda, about especially I mean, the national security stuff. Yeah, they should not be viewing people who are basically just expressing opposition to Trump as an enemy. The other thing that was strange in reading it is they wrote it. They seem to believe this. Mm-hmm. You know, like they seem to actually believe that – you know, there's a constant plot to, you know, kind of overthrow or undermine the government when really it's just people expressing opposition to Trump's policies. And it just shows you how deeply embedded the kind of conspiracy theory mindset is in the White House. Mm -hmm. And that's very, people should understand, like, that's very abnormal. You know, we had lots of critics. We didn't sit around in national security meetings and write memos, you know, viewing Breitbart as like the enemy of the state, you know, um, aiming to overthrow the government. Though I'll say personally, your listeners may not remember the Black Cube thing where there was a a bunch of Israeli former Mossad guys hired to dig up dirt on me and Colin Call Mm -hmm. and our families and they contacted our wives. What was striking to me is that this memo mirrored exactly what came out in that Black Cube thing, me and Colin as the leaders of some echo chamber aiming to undermine Trump. So to me, the forensics are pretty obvious that this memo is kind of the point of origin of whatever effort ultimately led to that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And similarly, as with so many things we see today, the idea of hiring, you know, foreign spies to essentially undermine your political opponents in the United States, that's not normal. No. <laughs> and it speaks to, again, an administration, a White House that, you know, is so profoundly outside of what people should expect in our country, in our democracy. They see legitimate dissent as intolerable. They see the media as intolerable. And they're essentially, even though they're inside the most powerful 
building an institution in the world, you know, they still feel like they have this conspiracy theory minded chip on their shoulder. Yeah. I mean, right. It seems clear to me a couple of things. I don't know this for sure, but it seems clear to me that Seb Gorka had a hand yeah. in writing this memo. And you, you made the point on our ongoing text chain that he had literally nothing else to do because he had yeah, yeah, security, yeah, no security clearance. clearance. <laughs> the guy couldn't get a clearance, so he's sitting around thinking about us. He couldn't go to meetings, so he's reading our tweets. And the memo said, like, these are the people who, you know, attacked Seb Gorka for being an anti-Semite because, like, I retweeted a forward article about yeah. you know, how he belonged to an anti-Semitic organization. Or I whatever. mean, just the, the self-absorption <laughs> uh, to see everything through a prism of how it affects yourself when you're supposed to, again, be in a job where you're looking out for the whole country you know, is is deeply, deeply strange. Yeah. So there's that weird part. I mean, there's the very strong likelihood that this a national security staff product was fed to a shadowy group of former intelligence operatives. I mean, is there a precedent for something like that? Are there no. implications that you think people should understand of how kind of serious that actually is? We want to make fun of it because it sucks. Yeah. I mean, I it led clearly to a bunch of stuff. I mean, people may remember the Devin Nunez stunt, right? Yep. Where he claimed that he had this information that, you know, Susan Rice and I were unmasking Trump officials. And it turns out I didn't unmask anybody. And But it led to all of this effort to throw up, you know, dust to say, you know, Obama wiretapped Trump Tower. The reality is this is not how the U.S. government should function. And the reason it should be concerning, you know, number one, it sends a pretty chilling message. It's the same thing of yanking Brennan's security clearance Mm -hmm. to people in the government, right, who are not like us, who are actually, you know, career people, foreign service people, intelligence analysts, you know, that if you deviate from, you know, some fealty to Trump, you, you might be punished. You right. know, there might be foreign spies hired to dig up dirt on you. Yeah. Um, if you wrote this op-ed, God knows yeah. what apparatus of the intelligence community is going to come after you. I mean, it, they're threatening them at the podium. Exactly. And, it, and that is what authoritarian governments do. You know, they, yeah. they come into power and they purge their enemies. They punish their enemies. They harass their enemies. That's what's unprecedented here is that it will potentially have a chilling effect on the advice that comes to Trump, mm-hmm. people's willingness to speak truth to power inside of government, the, the ability of Congress to conduct oversight because the Republicans have essentially signed on to this project. So it, it leads to, you know, really a lack of accountability inside of the government and, frankly, a chilling effect on the ability of people to raise their voices in opposition to, to what the government is doing. Yeah. Weird article. Okay, yeah. so like I said, today's the anniversary of 9-11. We'll release this on September 12th. Over the weekend, the Los Angeles Times had a story where they assessed 17 years after 9-11 attacks, what is the strength of al-Qaeda? And they yeah. suggested that al-Qaeda might actually be stronger than ever. And I, I wondered what your take on that was, if you saw that piece. Yeah, I saw it. I mean, I, I don't think that's right, because you have to separate out two things here. How much is their support for extremism and, mm-hmm. and violent extremism as you know practiced by al-Qaeda in different parts of the world? But also how capable is this terrorist network of carrying out an attack? You know, I worked with the 9-11 Commission. The hijackers were highly trained individuals who spent years designing that attack, learning how to fly planes, learning the vulnerabilities in our aviation system so they could bring box cutters onto those planes, picking the targets of the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. 
they were able to do that because they weren't under pressure. Mm -hmm. You know, they could just sit there in Pakistan and different parts of the world in cells that they had in places like Germany and plan this catastrophic attack. That capability does not exist anymore. Those kind of seasoned terrorists who have time and space to exploit open societies, they're under a lot of pressure. So, yes, while there may be a lot of support for the vision of al-Qaeda or ISIS in different mm -hmm. parts of the Muslim world, there's not that type of network that has the time and space and, fr frankly, freedom of movement and action to, to plan another 9-11-style attack. Right. The piece had some graphics where they estimated the number of al-Qaeda fighters yeah. and affiliates in countries like Syria and Yemen and Libya and Somalia. And to me, the common thread there was, like, these are failed states. There's no governance. There's no yeah. jobs. There's no infrastructure. There's no army necessarily in some of the places. I mean, Yemen is a is an interesting example because they're getting bombed constantly, right? Like yeah. there's the kinetic attacks all day, every day with horrific results. Is there a lesson that we should learn from that map about reorienting counterterrorism policy towards diplomacy and development and not just like bombing the shit out of a country like Yemen? Yeah. Look, I think the really difficult thing for Americans to recognize is that we got the response to 9-11 in a lot of ways wrong. Yeah. You know, it was wrong to obviously invade Iraq, a country that had nothing to do with 9-11 and essentially, you know, blow up and open up the Pandora's box of sectarian conflict in the heart of the Middle East. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's wrong that we're still in Afghanistan fighting a war almost 20 years after 9-11. You know, we did some things right in getting better at hardening our defenses and going after, in a pinpoint way, terrorist networks. But it's notable you know, that we have kept the threat away from 9-11-style attacks in the United States, but we've also contributed to the breaking apart of these states mm -hmm. and the, the military effort in Yemen being led by our so-called ally, Saudi Arabia, is a case in point. Like, where is that leading? Mm -hmm. It's not leading anywhere other than to further breaking apart that country, potentially radicalizing people, creating openings for extremists. And so I think, you know, at some point we have to make a pivot away from this kind of permanent war across the Middle East and, and parts of North Africa towards more diplomatic approaches. Because, you know, if we're essentially moving from one war to the next and breaking apart, you know, any capacity of these states to govern themselves either because of what we're doing or because of what Saudi Arabia is yeah. doing, you know, ultimately you're, you're going to have this constant festering sore of failed states and ungoverned spaces where, yes, it may be hard for a terrorist organization to kind of just hole up and plan a 9-11 attack for a couple of years, but there's going to be fighting, there's mm -hmm. going to be radicalization, there's going to be ISIS-type attacks in, in places like Europe where individuals who are angry about mm -hmm. what's happening in the Middle East uh, commit acts of violence. So I, I think that the you know, task for the next Democratic Congress, next Democratic president is going to be how do we definitively end these wars and pivot to a more diplomatic approach coupled with some counterterrorism capabilities. Obama moved us in that direction by bringing home well over 100,000 troops from Iraq and Afghanistan, but we didn't get all the way there. Yeah. I want to ask you a little more about Afghanistan in a second, but before we go to that question, I mean, drones, you can't talk about counterterrorism without drones. And I read a lot these days, uh, sort of just stated as a fact that drone strikes create more terrorists than they take off the battlefield. And at this point, it's been, what, five years since I've seen any intelligence yeah. on this stuff. So I don't really know the answer. But what's your take on that assertion? I think that there's something to it. You know, anybody who can 
say with certainty that this you know, cause had this effect in terms of a drone strike, it's a hard thing to measure. Mm-hmm. Here's what I do know, though, is that drones were a useful tool in taking out, like I said, kind of irreplaceable leaders of al-Qaeda, like people yeah. who had certain skills, right? They knew how to make bombs or they had contacts around the world or they were financiers of terrorism. Mm-hmm. My worry is... Once the U.S. government has a capability like drones, they they don't like to give them up. And they can always find a reason, well, there's a threat from this place, and so if we don't take these drone strikes, Mm -hmm. there's going to be a threat, and and we can't live with that threat. And my concern is, what is the plan to phase these out? You know, Um, do we need to be taking, you know, how do we separate out extremists who really do merit a potential drone strike from just these seem like bad guys, so let's take them out? Because I think where you do have a problem is, you know, take a country like Pakistan, you know, we're in this constant uh, situation where, you know, we're potentially taking actions inside of Pakistan that the local population doesn't like. Mm -hmm. And it seems to never end. And Pakistan continues to have radicalization in, in large parts of the country, continues to have a government that cannot really appear to be working closely with us because the public in Pakistan is so angry about drone strikes. You know, that's not sustainable over time. No. And so in these places like Pakistan and Yemen, where there has been a lot of U.S. counterterrorism activity, I do think over time there needs to be a plan to say we're willing to live with a certain amount of risk here mm-hmm. because continuing to take drone strikes is going to continue to turn the local population against us? And at what point is the value of taking out some extremists outweighed by the fact that, you know, it's not a sustainable model of security to constantly have a foreign government, the United States, you know, taking military action to kill people in these countries? Yeah, you're talking about the point in which smart counterterrorism policy intersects with stupid politics in our country. And boy, is that a fucking disaster. And, 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 you know, you sat in in the White House. It's tough, right? Because, you know, people come to you and they say, well, if you don't do something, there could be an attack. Right. And once somebody says that to you, it's like Pol- CYA, yeah, scary. Like, you know, you're thinking, well, I'll be responsible if there's an attack. And someday someone will sit in a congressional hearing and say, well, they were warned that if we don't take this strike in Yemen, you know, something bad could happen. And so there's always a reason to mm-hmm. bomb some other country. But at a certain point, we have to say it's time to <laughs> rethink that yeah. approach. You know? yeah. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, 
Ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. So right after 9-11, 9-11 attacks, we invaded Afghanistan. We're looking for bin Laden. We're trying to dismantle the Al-Qaeda network, and we have been there ever since. Yeah. 2,200 Americans have been killed. We've spent more than $840 billion with a B fighting the Taliban and paying for relief and reconstruction, which the New York Times noted is more expensive in current dollars than the Marshall Plan, yeah. which rebuilt Europe after World War II. When you look at those numbers and that time frame, on balance, was this worth it? Were we wrong to surge troops in 2009 and refocus on Afghanistan, or was it kind of broken at that point? I think, look, first of all, we should be out of Afghanistan. I think this should be a priority for Democrats if they take back Congress. Uh, I'd like to see Democratic candidates for president saying we should be out of Afghanistan. And I look at it this way. I was in New York on 9-11. I saw the World Trade Center you know, get attacked. I saw the first tower fall. And you know, I, I wanted to go get the people who did this. Yeah. If somebody had said to me, this kind of angry 24-year-old kid you know, walking around the streets in New York on that day, worried about whether I knew anybody was killed. Hey, we're going to go in Afghanistan, and we're going to topple the Taliban, and we're going to take out Osama bin Laden, mm-hmm. and you know, we're going to take out essentially all of the people responsible for this. I'd say, okay, that sounds good. If they said, oh, and by the way, we're also going to still be in Afghanistan 17 years from now, trying to prop up a government, fighting a constant insurgency and spending a trillion dollars, I think, well, that makes no sense. I don't Mm -hmm. think anybody in the United States would have thought that that made sense. And at a certain point, you have to say, we've accomplished the objective that we went there for. We took out the people who did this. We delivered justice to bin Laden. We took out the Taliban. And now it's time to leave. And again, there's the same problem where they'll say, well, if we leave, the Taliban could come back and take over parts of the country. They already have. Like, us being there is not a stabilizing presence. It just is feeding this perpetual insurgency, this perpetual war there. 
and us staying is not accomplishing the thing that people say will. Yeah. And so I think we were wrong in – I don't think we were wrong to surge some forces there and to go after al-Qaeda. I think we were wrong in not being clear at defining the acceptable endpoint at which point we could get out. Right. Because there were always – you know, the Taliban, they're just people who live there. I mean you talked about assessments of numbers. Every year they'd say, well, the Taliban has like twenty or 30,000 fighters. We were killing like – 10,000 people, probably more mm-hmm. than that each year. I don't know the exact number. Clearly, th- that n- but that number never changed. No, it's and always a stalemate. It's always a stalemate. And the, the fact is that these are tribal networks of people who live in Afghanistan and are going to be fighting to control the areas where they live. The Taliban has not tried to conduct attacks against the United States like al-Qaeda is. So it's not our job to eradicate the Taliban. We, we're not going to do it, uh, and we shouldn't try to do it. Yeah. A potentially even crazier idea for a war that is being floated yes. currently. We know from leaks, we know from Bob Woodward's book, we know from Trump's own public statements that he is seriously talking to his national security team about invading Venezuela. Uh, and in fact, had to be talked out of it, if you believe some of the reports. Now, it's a level set of Venezuela. It is a humanitarian disaster. People are starving. Hospitals have literally no supplies to use to treat their patients. There is the potential for a massive refugee yeah. crisis in South America. Yeah. So this is like a huge, yeah. huge, serious problem. But what do you make of these ideas for a military option for Venezuela? Like even I think Marco Rubio seems to be seriously considering this. I, I think it's totally insane. Venezuela, I mean, first of all, you have to – Nicolas Maduro, who is the president of Venezuela, is your kind of classic – Latin American leftist, you know, revolutionary ideology guy, right? And what he depends upon is the United States as a foil, you mm-hmm. know? In other words, you know, he is constantly telling people that he has to stay in charge because otherwise the United States will come in and they will depose his government and put in some with echoes of, you know, coups that we sponsored in the past in yeah. Latin America, you know, that's his legitimacy. And so any time that we are seen as plotting a coup to overthrow Maduro or to invade Venezuela, it is fueling his capacity to rally some modicum of support because he's saying, I'm the one standing up to the United States. And so we're giving him oxygen. We're giving him what he wants, which is some legitimacy to stand up to the United States. And what we need to do, what we should be doing is diplomatically working with other countries in Latin America, with all the different factions in Venezuela to say, there needs to be a way out of this crisis. There mm-hmm. needs to be some kind of unity government that can come together. There needs to be some way to get foreign assistance into the country to deal with the humanitarian crisis. Frankly, how are we going to get foreign assistance in the country if we're also saying we're going to invade the country? You know, right. the, that, right. that, that's not going to work, right? And by the way, the consequences of this could be, yeah, like a Syrian refugee crisis, something of that scale in yeah. the Americas. Millions right? of people. People coming to Colombia, people trying to get up to the United States. And so you know, we should be focused on this diplomatically. Militarily, how is this going to work? to invade Venezuela. It's a large country. There are people who will resist us. We will have no legitimacy for it, no support for it in Latin America from neighboring countries. We'd be totally isolated. I mean, it's a completely crazy idea. Frankly, I, I worry that you know, when Trump is looking for some type of distraction, something to do, that they might actually seriously consider this. Yes. In compounding the problem, the New York Times reported over the weekend that the Trump administration held secret talks with Venezuelan military leaders to discuss a plan to overthrow Maduro. So exactly the thing you're talking about him being paranoid about is actually being discussed. I mean, like I looked at that report and I thought they are 
crazy for even taking that meeting because of course it was going to leak. But what did you make of that? And do you think, is it legal for us to have those or participate in such a plan? No, I mean, uh, you know, and, and we had gotten out of the business of sponsoring coups in Latin America, you know, a long time ago, decades ago. I mean, there's not a good history of it no. from Chile to, you know, Cuba. Cuba, of course. The other thing is, here's what would happen. I mean, just even if you take it at face value, if there's some coup that the U.S. has its fingerprints on, there will be massive street fighting in Caracas and across Venezuela. So the violence will just get compounded. We will be universally condemned around the world. So we'll have no political or diplomatic support for this. You know, Venezuela will be this failed state um, where the violence will you know, probably just get worse and the migration flows will just get worse. And what's the plan after that? You right. know? Um, so it just doesn't make sense. And again, there's not a, a legal basis for the United States to support you know, the undemocratic removal of even an odious guy, let's be clear, Maduro's a terrible guy, yeah. you know, uh, but you'd like to see him removed through some political process inside of the country, you know, leading to an election, not through some foreign intervention in, in cahoots with a faction of the Venezuelan military. Yeah. It's a ticking time bomb. It I is. Mean, it is it, it, People should watch this thing, though. I mean, because it, it's got all the, the hallmarks. You know, they, they might be thinking the Trump White House, you know, this is closer to home. Maybe it's not as complicated as, mm-hmm. as going to the Middle East. There's some, you know, hardline political support for it in Florida. You know, maybe Rubio can get on board. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, it's not beyond the realm of the possible. But what are we going to end up doing if we're, you know, responsible for essentially a complete failed state in, in one of the largest countries in Latin America? Yeah. This is a kind of idea that if it got serious, where people should take to the streets again and go yeah. another Women's March style yeah. protest. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Switching gears a little bit, there are a lot of challenges in the world right now. Uh, We talked about terrorists. We talked about North Korea's talks appear to be falling apart. What is Trump's team talking about? His national security (laughs) advisor, John Bolton, went out yesterday and gave a speech attacking the International Criminal Court, otherwise known as the ICC. That choice was confusing for me. Can we start with the basics? Can you talk a little bit about what the ICC does and why the United States has 
historically had an arm's length relationship with it as an entity. Yeah. So the ICC is set up to enforce, you know, international justice. It's generally been used to prosecute war criminals, right? So Slobodan Milosevic, the Serbian you know, war criminal, is the most high-profile guy who's prosecuted. It should serve as a tool that the international community has to say, if we see war crimes developing, people can be held accountable through the ICC. Mm-hmm. Frankly, even though the U.S. isn't party to it, which I'll get to in a second, you know, we've used it in the past to say it's a threat to a guy like you know, Gaddafi, for instance. Once the ICC opens up an investigation, you know, it's a message to the people in that country that this guy is a war criminal or in parts of Africa, you know, it's been used to signal when ethnic violence starts. If you keep going down this road, you know, you're going to face international justice and that's going to make it very hard for you to have any maneuvering room. Uh, The U.S. has resisted joining it all the way back to the origins of it in the 90s because of some concerns that our troops could potentially be prosecuted because the U.S., unlike most every other country in the world, has a lot of troops deployed in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're sovereignty conscious and particularly the right wing does not believe that you know we should risk the possibility that U.S. troops could be convicted in the ICC. Or, for instance, people like Henry Kissinger, you know, could be held accountable right. for their work. God crimes, forbid, you know? right, yeah. I mean, let, let's face it. Can, can I tell yeah, you a little yeah. funny story about that? So right after Obama was elected, between when he was elected... I think this was to the U.S. Senate. I can't remember if it was Senate or President. He went to a dinner at George Will's house yeah. with like George Will and some D.C. muckety mucks. And Boy, like, it just shows you how long ago 2008 I know. Like was, my yeah. brain is just like I can barely remember these things. He was chatting with George Will's kid who was I think doing like, you know, mock debate or debate prep or whatever that you, know, you do in, in your high school. And the su- question he asked President Obama, then Senator Obama, was about the U.S. membership in the ICC. Yeah, so yeah. it was clearly yeah, yeah. in that zeitgeist. Anyway, well, sorry. I, I think, you know, the, the point is that, look, uh, Trump has managed to attract the very worst people, <laughs> you know, <laughs> promised the very best. But the people who've kind of both been willing to check their principles at the door yeah. and accept White House jobs. Like John Bolton. The, you know, it's the third or fourth tier of people. And you take a guy like Bolton, and he's kind of easy to laugh at because he's got like a weird mustache, and he went on Fox News for 10 years, fulminating wanting to go to war everywhere. But the other thing about John Bolton is like this guy is like this kind of unreconstructed right-wing guy from the 90s, right? So his hobby horses are these weird conservative causes that are like 10 or 20 years out of date. Like the ICC is not the pressing issue in the world today, right? But he's been pissed off about the ICC for like 15 years. Nobody would hire him, but now he's got this like plum job, the most influential national security job in the Trump administration. So it's like he's going through a checklist of things mm-hmm. that have pissed him off, and the ICC is one of them. So he's he's going to say, you know, we want nothing to do with you. The related thing of what he said is he kind of coupled this with the notion that we're also going to cease all assistance to the Palestinians, yes. right? And this is another thing. Israel doesn't like the ICC because you know they're worried that you know, when they have a Gaza war that, you know, the ICC could try to hold Israel accountable. And that is something that we've been concerned about too. But at the same time, you know, they said in cutting off assistance to Palestinians that this was meant to try to get them into a peace process. I mean, anybody who in any way thinks the Trump administration or the Netanyahu administration is sincere in pursuing peace Give me a break here. Yeah. They'd like to mouth words about wanting in a peace process while just kind of muscling the Palestinians into the ground. Terrible here, deal, you know? yeah. And so that, too, it's another thing on Bolton's uh, you know, checklist here. Like, let's defund the Palestinians. Let's pull out the ICC. But my question is, like, why? W- right. w- with all the challenges in the world, why is this your agenda? You know, 
and it raises all kinds of questions. I, I'd say Bolton, another thing that hasn't gotten a lot of attention, should get more, is these connections between Russia and the NRA. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that surfaced when Bolton came out was this video of, of John Bolton doing a video to the Russian people about how they should support gun that rights. That was so strange. It was so strange. But then we've subsequently learned about all this money coming into the mm-hmm. NRA from shadowy Russian interests. You know, R- NRA potentially being – it just shows you that this is really a story of the Trump administration of all the worst people. Yeah. You know, that, that somehow – you know, you, if I told you two years ago that this Russia story is also going to lead to the NRA – You'd think, oh come on, that's too convenient. Well, actually, it seems it does. So, I know. so Bolton, you know, is bringing a lot of baggage into this job, bringing a lot of grudges into this job, and instead of standing up to Russian interference in our elections, he's like standing up to a European, you know, centered organization at the Hague <laughs> as like some threat to national security. It's so funny. Like, yeah, none of these people ever thought they were going to win an election or be in a position of prominence again, things, or yeah. else, like, yeah. how else could you understand General Flynn getting paid off by every country and like plotting kidnapping? Yeah of like, you know, anti-Gulenists. Bolton, Manafort, Flynn, all these guys didn't seem to think they'd actually win. And once they won, all this kind of corruption, the dark underbelly of what they've been doing for the last decade, you know, is now out in the open to see. And then their own ideas for what to do with power, you know, don't amount to much more than some right-wing checklist from the 90s. Yeah. The gutting the assistance to the Palestinians thing is very strange to me. Because Dan Shapiro, our former colleague on the NSC and then the U.S. ambassador to Israel, pointed out that the Israelis wanted us to keep that assistance going because it helped them continue peace talks or it helped develop the things you want developed in the West Bank, like infrastructure, security needs. If the Palestinian Authority, which depends on this assistance, collapses, it leaves only Hamas Mm -hmm. as the most powerful faction among the Palestinians, right? And so the Palestinian security forces help provide a lot of security in the West Bank. They work with the Israeli security forces to provide security in the West Bank. And they offer you know, not a, in any way a perfect form of leadership. And they've had problems with anti-Semitism that need to obviously be spotlighted and addressed. But the fact is, if you pull the rug out from the Palestinian Authority and they collapse, all you have is Hamas. Right. Um, and all you have is a situation where you know, the Palestinians have no political recourse. And so you know, they're more likely to turn to violence. Yeah. My last question for you is, you know, we're, we're recording this on the 9-11 anniversary, there's also a terrifying hurricane barreling down yeah. in North Carolina, South Carolina, the, the East Coast. Back in the day when we were in government, prepping for these anniversaries, like we would spend weeks scrubbing all intelligence and like seeing if there was anything that needed to be done to prepare for maybe some sort of terrorist attack marking the anniversary of 9-11. When there was a horrific natural disaster, like an earthquake in Haiti, for example, or, or a major hurricane, we would spend hours, days at a time in, in the situation room, like coordinating, planning. Do you get the sense that those homeland security focused pieces of the government, whether it's FEMA or the FBI or the intelligence services are like still humming along and doing the things they need to do? Or is the Trump administration screwing up those vital components that usually you know, have some good continuity between administrations? Yeah, I think it's a problem. I mean, first of all, I'd say that whenever there was like a hurricane or a major natural disaster, you remember Tommy Craig Fugate? Yeah, yeah. So we had this guy who ran FEMA who'd spent his life you know, working in disaster response, working to respond to hurricanes. Like he'd walk in the room and I'd just feel better. Totally. <laughs> you know, like, yes. like this guy was on top of it. It was going to – government was going to function. And, you know, this is the right-wing hostility to government. You hate government until you need government to come in right. and deal with a hurricane, yeah. right? And it takes a lot of preparation. It takes a lot of coordination with state and local governments. 
I'll tell you one thing that didn't get a ton of attention, which is there was a guy who was responsible at the NSC for that Homeland Security function named Tom Bossert, mm-hmm. right? And he was just kind of, you know, he was a Homeland Security advisor. So the same job that, you know, John Brennan yep. had and Lisa Monaco for us. You oversee counterterrorism and you oversee hur- hurricanes and, and Homeland Security functions. And this guy was a kind of traditional Republican guy, you know, probably not like the first choice because he went to work for Trump, but right. recognizable. When Bolton was hired, he was out the next day. He shoved him out the door. He shoved him out the I door. forgot right? about yeah, that. Yeah, so he gets rid of the kind of semi-competent guy who knows how to run this process yeah. because he was clearly trying to consolidate some mm-hmm. power in the NSC. So for all I know, I don't think that they've gotten that position <laughs> filled in good order. And so, you know, one of the things that I think is really important for people to understand is that the Trump people, for all the chaos we've watched, haven't really dealt with that many crises. No. They dealt with one in Puerto Rico on a hurricane, and they did horribly. And there are Americans today who are still suffering because of how poorly they handled that. And, you know, Donald Trump went down there and threw toilet paper at people and said nobody had died or a small number of people died when it turns out thousands had. And so my concern is whether it's this hurricane, an epidemic Mm -hmm. disease like Ebola, a major terrorist attack, uh, as God forbid, as we speak on the 9-11 anniversary, you know, what happens with this level of chaos and, you know, it's all well and good to talk about anonymous op-eds in Bob Woodward's book. But, you know, when the shit really hits the fan and you have something like, a, a you know, another catastrophic hurricane or disease, how is this White House going to function? How are people also going to trust the information they get? Like, you want to talk about the consequences of people like Sarah Sanders lying. Well, in a crisis, like, you need to be able to trust the information right. you're getting from the White House press secretary. Yes. You know, you've had to be – I mean, Tommy, you remember you used to put out these, like, very detailed statements right after mm-hmm. hurricanes – instructing people about what we were doing, what to do. Do you get any sense that that would no. be happening now? No, basic. Yeah, right. We would try to give people a basic understanding of like the president met in the situation room with his team and the following individuals for an hour and a half today to review what's going on. The following steps were taken after just so people kind of had a window into what was happening and they could like what they heard. They could hate what they heard, but at least we tried to offer some transparency. But you're right. Like Sarah Sanders has no credibility. Listen, the piece of me that is increasingly nervous about the situation you're talking about, wonders if something really bad were to happen, is there any doubt in your mind that President Trump would offer support to his supporters first and help yeah, and yeah. not others, right? Yeah. Like, I also think about what he might do with the intelligence community if something really scary happened yeah. uh, and the way that that would just open up their ability to monitor all kinds of Americans. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's unnerving. And it this really stuff is. is hard. I mean, you went down to Haiti. I mean, how big of a logistical, yeah. you know, after the earthquake oh that killed hundreds of thousands of people down yeah. there, the logistical expertise required to just set up any response that could save lives, yeah. right? I mean, it's extraordinary. And all these things we've talked about, you know, potential wars, potential terrorist attacks, you know, hurricanes, this White House is completely unprepared to deal with any of those things. Yeah. And the ability for, for chaos or the ability for you know, malevolent actions like you described, taking advantage of a terrorist attack to, to get more powers of surveillance, to go after political enemies. You know, we could be tested in ways that we have not yet been as chaotic as the last year and a half feel to us if any one of these shoes drop. Yeah. And, and honestly, like a lot of the gossipy stuff from Woodward's book is leaking out and rightly getting covered a lot. But I think that's his fundamental point. And he seems actually scared when he's doing these interviews about yeah. how dysfunctional it is in there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all dealt with Bob Woodward books. But um, <laughs> the, the thing that feels different this time is, 
you know, usually he gets a bunch of damaging pieces of gossip mm-hmm. and it's a pain in the ass to deal with for a week or two and you know you wonder who said what this isn't a portrayal where it's like oh there's this one shiny object from the Woodward book that we can talk about even though there are a lot of shiny objects it said like this is a completely chaotic White House that can't function led by someone unfit in any way shape or form for this office and that is a danger to this country Um, and we should believe him Uh, we should believe him (laughs) and 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 where the, we still have potentially over two years of this presidency, a lot can happen in two years. Yeah. That's why we need to Vote. win yeah. the midterms. Yeah. Yeah. Go to votesaveamerica.com if you haven't yet. Uh, ben, I'm so glad the resistance has moved west, the echo chamber. We've decamped west. west. Uh, I had to, for safety reasons, uh, get some distance. And uh, and I will thank your listeners who came out on some of my book tour events. Yeah, it's a the, fantastic book, The World uh, As It the Is. The World As It Is. So if you haven't picked it up, great fall reading. I've had so many people tell me how much they loved your book. They don't actually care about foreign policy. They just thought it was like a bunch of great stories that yeah. were like fun to read and riveting and like brought them behind the scenes. So. And it's counter-programming in a way. It's like, you know, we didn't get everything right. Let's stress that. No. But like, this is a portrait of like how government functioned before yeah. the fall. Or at least tries. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Tried to yeah, it's like Pompeii. It's just yeah. like hardened underneath. <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, thanks, buddy. All great right, to see thanks. you. Thanks. Good to see you.